We're in uh, Romans chapter 3 today, and uh, one of the things we're going to do today is I'm going to read it from uh, two different translations, uh, precisely uh, because the grammar of this text is interesting, to say the least. Uh, I think it's glorious. Uh, obviously, Paul, and in the, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, the grammar is glorious, and yet it is tough for us, and you'll see some uh, differences in the translations uh, that sort of accentuating slightly different things. And then, of course, it's my job to sort of make sense of all that, right? So actually, it's God's job to make sense of all that. So I'll read first from the uh, English Standard Version. Uh, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here now from the old NIV, not the new NIV. Now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to justify his justice at the right time, so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we need you to illumine this text as well as illumining our minds and hearts. As I mentioned, there is lots of glorious grammar that must be reckoned with. And this grammar has met, led many astray at times. And so I ask that you and your mercy would keep us from such error, that you would correct any errors that uh, we've held. I ask that you would be renewing our minds that we might be transformed this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the living word of God. Amen. For a long time, Martin Luther had a problem. For a long time, his problem was with a phrase in Scripture. A phrase that we've read earlier when we looked at uh, Romans 1, which we find twice here in this text, at the very beginning, this phrase, which is usually translated, righteousness of God. 
He had a problem with this phrase. He struggled with this phrase because he believed that the, the proper way of understanding that was put this way, the righteousness that belonged to God or the righteousness that he had in and of himself, his righteousness, which meant that Martin, having a profound sense of his guilt and unworthiness and sin, feared the righteousness of God. Because he correctly understood that because God is righteous, his wrath could, could and should break out against him at any possible moment. And so he lived in fear of this actually happening. He struggled with trying to understand that phrase, particularly when Paul said, this is good news. At that point, he did not see it as very good, precisely because he misunderstood that phrase. But he correctly understood that our sin and God's righteousness create certain issues, and God cannot just kind of wink and our sin be gone. Something must happen in order for God to justify people who are not righteous. That's what this text is. Paul is getting to this point in his argument in Romans where he's, he's going to explain how it is that there is good news when you have a righteous God and sinners like us. He's got, he, this is where he's getting, getting to it. So the big, guy this morning, the big idea this morning is that God is just to justify all who believe in Jesus. And we have to start with the reality that Paul starts with here, that righteousness is not the result of rule-keeping. Indeed, righteousness is not the result of rule-keeping. As I mentioned, Paul's building the logic or the reasoning of the gospel that something has happened because he says, now the righteousness of God has been revealed. Something has taken place that hadn't taken place before. But when he speaks of the righteousness of God, when we, when, and here's how Luther finally got it. He finally put it in the greater context of the verses after both these instances. And he began to see that the righteousness of God did not point to that which belonged to God, but the righteousness which was from God. A righteousness which he is going to freely, graciously bestow upon other people. That is what made the good news good. Finally, Luther has his tower experience. All of the dominoes sort of fell in line, and he finally realized, it is good news. <laughs> There's something to rejoice about here. God saves sinners, and he knew that there was hope for himself. How does this righteousness from God, this righteousness uh, come to people like us. Well, Paul does has a couple of things initially. He says that this righteousness that has been revealed is apart from the law. That's very significant. It does not come, God does not give this righteousness to us as a result of us keeping the law, whether it's God's law or man's law. Rule keeping, rule abiding, law keeping, however you want to put it, does not bring this. It is not produced by trying harder. It is not produced by being better. 
It is not produced by creating a new set of laws around God's laws so that you make sure that you don't break God's laws. You put up this little barrier, you know. That's not how righteousness is approved. It's not by building fences around the commandment so that you never get close to breaking the commandment. It is actually, astoundingly, according to Paul, apart from the law. And not only is it apart from obedience to the law, but some people have have thought that that maybe this is having to do with rituals or sacraments. Okay, remember, the Judaizers in Paul's day were saying that, well, yeah, you, you know, faith plus circumcision. You had to undergo this. And, and so Paul here would be saying, no, it's apart from that. This, this gift called justification does not happen as a result of being circumcised. The church that Paul, uh, Luther was a part of before the Reformation taught that justification, this gift of righteousness came at baptism and Luther realized, no, it does not come that way. It comes apart from that. It comes apart from obedience, from ritual, from sacrament. It is not bestowed by those things. Here's the problem. Paul says, There is no difference. There is no distinction. All have sinned. He points here to the reality of exactly why it is that rule-keeping doesn't work, and that is because everyone has disobeyed God's law. Everyone finds themselves as guilty and condemned, and that this is sort of coming, thankfully, after the end of a lot of bad news that started in Romans 1.18 and carried all the way through and we read from part of that in our confession of sin this morning. Okay? Lots of bad news. Paul is laying out the case over and over again, not just for the sinfulness of those evil Gentiles, but also for the sinfulness of Jews, who thought that they were sort of better than the Gentiles. And so that is why he has that idea of, I'm hitting something wrong. There is no difference. There is no distinction. It doesn't matter whether you are a Greek or a Gentile or a Jew. You've sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. You're not reflecting God's glory because of your sin. You're not living up to what you were created to do as it made in the image of God to reflect God's glory. Something significant has happened and has gone wrong. Sinners. It doesn't matter. There's no distinction whether you're male or female. You're in the same boat. It's not like guys are more righteous than girls. That's not the truth. Another thing that Paul mentions in, another, in Galatians is, is the reality. of doesn't matter whether you're slave or whether you're free. You're still in the same boat. You're still guilty before God. There's no difference nor distinction. But there's also another sense in which I want to bring up this morning is that there is no difference or distinction ultimately when it comes to what sin you have particularly committed. Okay, not all sins are created equal. But, as we read at the end of uh, chapter 1, that all of these things deserve death. We see in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. Okay, they all have the same penalty. And so it doesn't matter which sins, you know, 
we might happen to commit. So it doesn't matter if you're a murderer or you're a gossip. Both, because they've been committed against God, are worthy of death. It doesn't matter whether you're an adulterer or a slanderer. Guilty before God, deserving of death. It doesn't matter whether you are a coveter or a pedophile. Guilty, condemned before God. How does this operate? Story. I really enjoy pistachio nuts. Okay? They are an incredibly special, rare treat in my house because pistachio nuts are relatively expensive as far as nuts go. And I don't feel comfortable asking my wife to buy me pistachio nuts when, you know, the stuff the kids need. Okay? Just an economic thing. Really enjoy them. Wish I could live off of pistachio nuts. Okay? Uh, Paul Tripp talked about bigaliciousness and all that stuff. Pistachioiciousness me. Okay? I could live off these things. Well, recently my wife came home from, I think, Costco with a five-pound bag of pistachio nuts. And not just normal pistachio nuts. It was the salt and pepper pistachio nuts. And if you've had the salt and pepper pistachio nuts, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. It is up to ante to even, oh, it's good. They're so good. Okay? Keep in mind, five Pound bag. <laughs> Lots of pistachios that will last me a long time. So I opened them and I enjoyed the first sweet, joy, beautiful pistachios and I didn't put them away, you know. And then Bill came home. <laughs> and I'm sitting on the couch and I hear Bill go, Ooh, pistachios. <laughs> And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, they're all gone. <laughs> Bill is going to eat my pistachio nuts. I'm moving this thing, sorry. For those of you who are listening on the internet, sorry. Okay. My sinful heart was afraid that somehow Bill would consume five pounds of pistachios <laughs> that night. <laughs> Do you see the greed in my heart over something as simple as pistachios? And so, I, fortunately, I didn't go, you know, Bill, don't eat my pistachios, man. I kind of sat there on the couch and was kind of like, only pistachios, only pistachios. <laughs> Jesus, forgive me. It's only pistachios, okay? Sin. Does it? I don't have to go out and commit a heinous crime, that greed, that selfishness is vile in God's sight because I'm not even loving my brother. I should want to gift him with pistachios that my wife gifted me. Anyway, that's sort of how it works, the whole nuts thing. So as I said from from Romans 6, the wages of all sins is death. I deserve death for my wanting to cling to my pistachio nuts. There is no righteous person. There is, in fact, no innocent person around to reward. And that's one of the things 
that comes up often. Well, what about the innocent guy on the island who's never heard of Jesus? The guy doesn't exist. It's a fiction. All have sinned, Paul says. Every single last human being apart from Jesus Christ sinned. And so God cannot be just and justify anyone on the basis of their own track record. God can't look at me and say, you know, Steve, you did a couple of good things, you're in. No, it doesn't happen that way. Because God is just. And he sees all that I've done wrong. So, Paul then moves from the idea that righteousness is not the result of rule-keeping to the fact that Jesus dies to demonstrate God's righteousness and to justify us. The answer has now been revealed, Paul says, by God. But here's the thing. It was testified to in the law and the prophets. It's not like Paul is just sort of making this thing up. Like, hey, you know, this sounds like a groovy new religion. Let's do this. He's saying that this was always God's plan. It just hadn't happened yet. Jesus hadn't come yet, but the the Old Testament testifies to the reality that Jesus would come and would accomplish this. It is not a new deal, but it is the fulfillment of the old deal. Now, that fulfillment means that certain aspects of that will become obsolete. He is the one who provides the atonement. We no longer have to bring a bull to worship on Sunday morning, okay? We don't have to bring a goat in here and uh, sprinkle blood all over the place. And, you know, I got a visual, a great visual of that one. What day is today? Sunday. Saturday morning at 4.30 when I walked into Eli's room and he'd had this massive nosebleed and he was calling out for mom. And, of course, I got to go. And I'm like, it's like a crime scene in there. There's, like, blood everywhere. You know, we're not doing that here, you know. We don't have to shed blood in this building precisely because the blood of Jesus has been shed. Paul is not breaking free of the Old Covenant, but he is showing this fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And he says this phrase that God is demonstrating his righteousness. And that's interesting precisely because in the first part of this text, it is the righteousness of God. When you get to the back part of this text, when he's talking about the demonstration, it is his righteousness. Paul is using the grammar, and this is why I said it's glorious. Paul is using a shift in grammar to indicate, I believe, a shift in meaning. He has moved away from the righteousness that God grants to us to now, again, the righteousness God has in and of himself. God must satisfy that righteousness, and he's demonstrating through the work of Jesus Christ how it is that he is able to be just and justify the wicked like you and me. I love Paul. This is the righteousness that belongs to God. But Paul is talking about how it it is being demonstrated or it is being proved. If I love my wife, guess what? It will be demonstrated. It will be proved in acts that are actually loving. Okay? 
Here, God's righteousness is proved by an act. It is manifested. It is revealed. It is made clear to us so that we may know the reality that, yes, God is righteousness. And according to Paul, this is, this is precisely because of the fact that up to this point, God had been passing over sin. He had looked unrighteous because apart from certain instances like Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, things like that, many sins had gone unpunished by God. There was not instantaneous judgment that came upon people. And so it looked that God was actually unjust. And so you see, on the one hand, he is forgiving the sins of people like David and Abraham, people who trusted in him. And on the other hand, he is not punishing the sins of others. And so all of this seems to look initially as though God is unjust and he is about to prove his justice in this act. What happened? We see that the free gift, the undeserved favor, comes by particularly what Paul says, the redemption by Christ. He's going to explain what happened in a few different words, and one of them is this idea of redemption. This is a, this is a word that comes from the world of commerce, particularly the, word, the, the, the slave market. Slaves have been purchased and freed. This still happens today. There are ministries you can contribute to, and what they will do is they will take that money and they will go to places in Africa particularly northern Africa, and they will buy Christians who have been enslaved by non-Christians. They are redeeming them. They are buying them back. And so part of the picture here, which we see this idea of redemption also in Exodus, that God had redeemed his people from Egypt, their slave masters. We who were slaves to sin have been bought back by the blood of Jesus. That's one aspect of this. This idea of redemption also we see in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul clarifies this. He says that the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our debt is paid by Christ. Okay. But then we see this other phrase that God presented him as a propitiation or atoning sacrifice. There's, there's two things that are very important here. And the first is this. God presented him. Sometimes people have this mistaken notion when, we, when you talk about the wrath of God that somehow God's really ticked and the only way for him not to be ticked is for Jesus to stand in the way and make God love these people. Okay? That somehow um, Jesus turns his heart from Hatred to love for his people. That's not true. That is a mischaracterization of Scripture and of the gospel because it was the Father's idea to send the Son. He is saying, my people's sin is offensive to me because I am righteous, but I want to be merciful to them, so I will send my Son. He loved his people before Jesus came. His love is the reason that Jesus came. Okay? So uh, let's get any mistaken notions that somehow the, that the Father and the Son aren't on the same page in this whole deal. They're, they're exactly on the same page. 
God presents him as this atoning sacrifice. There's no, Jesus was the high priest here. It wasn't someone else. This is God's idea. And Jesus is willing to do this. To come, not just to die, but to die particularly as an atoning sacrifice. To remove God's wrath so that God can now be merciful to his people. And bestow his, his love upon them freely. Okay, so Jesus fulfills all of the sacrifices of atonement that we've been looking at in the Old Testament and removes God's wrath at our sin. Okay, so this is how it connects. So that God can be just, or another word for that would be righteous. That's part of the beauty of Greek. That same word can mean to be just or to be righteous. And you see, if you compare the NIV and the ESV, they use different ones. One uses just, one uses righteousness. Okay? Same basic concept. It's not like one's wrong, but okay, one's more clear, I guess. Uh, God is maintaining his righteousness precisely because he meets out his justice upon his son. So that the righteousness that comes from God is a gift, the gift of being declared righteous. In God's eyes. Okay? So Jesus' death is precisely how God can be just in justifying sinners. Third part of this. Righteousness is received by faith in Jesus, period. And that will become clear in a few moments. Paul wants to be precisely clear about this. Did you hear how many times he said faith? In this passage, it's, it's about faith. And we're going to see that it's not just a vague faith. It's not a general faith. Uh, I can't remember the name of the worldly philosopher at the moment. But, uh, you know, uh, he said, um, it's my job to sin and it's God's job to forgive. Uh, no. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. Um, okay, what Paul is doing is he's pounding this, just as Luther talked about pounding the gospel into the heads of his listeners, Paul is pounding this reality into the heads of the Romans because the Roman Christians weren't quite getting it. They were still squabbling amongst themselves as though somehow the Jewish Christians might be better than the Gentile Christians or the other way around. And he's saying, dudes, same boat. You know, you're not in charge of this ship. Just sit and enjoy. Okay? What is faith? Some people see faith as as, as sort of the mere assent or acknowledgement that something is true. Is this made of wood? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> that, you know, some people think that's what faith is, like assenting that something is true. Faith goes far beyond that. It, it assents that the things are true, but we know from James chapter 2 that you know, the demons know there is a God. Satan knows the truth. It's not a question of he believes lies, though he is the father of lies. He hates the truth. 
That's the distinction. He wants to destroy the truth. And so what faith is, is not just assenting that something is true, but trusting in it. What the reformers called fecundia. Hopefully I didn't mispronounce that into something very bad. Okay. I, I always sort of understand this with, with when I would go rappelling back in Tennessee. It's one thing to say, oh, I believe the rope can hold me up. It's quite another thing to dangle from that same rope, 60 feet above the ground. Hard ground. Lots of jagged things in the way. It's very different to trust your fate to the rope. And that's biblical faith. Trusting your fate to Jesus. Not just going, hey, that sounds good. Trusting your fate to Jesus. Now we come to one of those phrases here in the text that's a, that's a little difficult. The NIV has it. Uh, let me see. I want to make sure I get the right spot. Ah, yes, verse 22. There is, uh, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, that sounds a little redundant. Faith can mean faith and faithfulness. I think, uh, biblically this holds true, whether or not this actual verse teaches this. I think it does, but it may not. One of the things we are to trust in is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We are to believe and rely upon, stake our claim on the fact that He was faithful, what is called uh, theologically the act of obedience of Christ as our substitute. Everywhere that you and I failed, He was faithful. And so... It's not just that he removes our guilt, but also justification is that God declares us righteous. He doesn't declare us merely innocent. He declares us righteous, and he declares us righteous because he gives us the faithfulness and right, right, the righteousness of his Son. Two different theologians on their deathbed. One of them, Herman Bavink, your guy. My systematic theology cannot save me. It was Christ. It's not your theology. However good theology and important theology is, it is not your theological system that saves you. It is Christ who saves those who trust in him. Second guy, John Murray, Scottish guy who used to teach at Westminster in Philadelphia. He telegraphed one of his friends when he was just, just before he died, and he says, Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. Because apart from that, there is no one who is declared righteous. Okay? The active obedience, the faithfulness of Jesus is essential for our salvation. Okay? Rome. What Luther was operating with says that your acceptance before God is based on your faith and your obedience. 
Okay? We ain't got a whole lot. (laughs) Paul doesn't go there. It is by faith alone. Not faith and something else. Not faith and circumcision. Not faith and baptism. Not faith and tithing. Not faith and sexual purity. Not faith and fill in the blank. Faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Not just that, but Paul says faith, and here's where I'm preferring the NIV over the ESV, faith in his blood. Okay, again, there's sort of that sort of redundancy, you know, propitiation in blood. Well, there's no other way to make propitiation but blood. We must believe not just in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, but we must believe that his death or his passive obedience is sufficient in our place. Or we're banking everything on the death of Jesus. Just like we're banking everything on the faithfulness of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus. Okay? It's not like I'm forgiven... You know, because of Jesus and, you know, as, it, as Rome teaches, for sins committed after baptism, you have to make satisfaction. Whether it's prayers or whether it's good deeds, something. That's what Rome teaches. And, that, and that's what finally blew Luther's mind apart. Okay? He says, no, freely given, not freely earned, not partially earned, completely given. And so, your forgiveness of sins does not come because you, like Luther, before his conversion, would sit there and say, mea culpa, mea culpa, and take a whip and hit himself in the back. Whether you do it verbally or physically, that is not how forgiveness comes. It does not come by beating yourself up. It does not come from self-pity, nor does it come from trying better or doing something extra special this week. It comes from faith in his blood. There is nothing you can add to his obedience. You can, there's nothing you can add to his death. You cannot be more justified or less justified. You just are justified. And then Paul uses this phrase in verse 21 and 26. The book ends. Faith in Jesus Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the one that we trust. And this is why J.I. Packer in his, in his book, Knowing God, writes that faith is self-abandoning trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's laid out here, boom, Romans 3. As a young Christian, when I read that book, that was so important to me that I, I wrote that in my Bible, you know, on, the back, on the front cover, you know, inside of the front cover. I said, this is so important. That's the Bible I recently threw away because the water got to it. I spilled water on it. and Finally, even though I taped this thing together 14 times, it, I said, it's gone. It's, it's had enough. It lived good life. It served me well. But I had to keep remembering. Faith is not a general concept, but is specifically in the person of Jesus, but it is also in his work, what he did.
Not everyone is going to be declared righteous by God. But this text makes clear repeatedly that it is only those who trust, rely upon, stake everything on Jesus and his work. So, we find that Luther struggled with the scriptures. He didn't go into speculative theology. He sought to understand the scriptures. And that's exactly what happened on purpose. I didn't tell you this earlier, but his confessor, Staupitz, was going insane (laughs) because Luther would occupy hours of his day confessing his sins. And Luther would leave his presence and then remember some other sin and go back and confess it to him. And so Staupitz realized that this really was a justification issue. He didn't yet get how it is that you know, Staupitz was not a, a, a man of the church in that respect. He deviated from the teaching of the church at that time. And so he said it was that you need to go back to the scriptures. And so as a result, why don't you become a doctor in theology? <laughs> he forced him into the scriptures. And it was wrestling with these texts to teach from them that Luther, the light bulb finally went on. God said, boom, here it is. He struggled with the texts. The Spirit used the Scriptures to reveal the truth to him. And that truth that is revealed in this text is that God justifies sinful people. And he can do this justly because Jesus obeyed the law for them and bore his wrath for them. So do you believe? Are you staking everything on it? Or do you kind of have... One foot in Jesus and one foot somewhere else, hoping that one of the two will pan out. You can't be a divided person. Okay? You'll be like a guy who has one foot on the dock and another foot on the boat. At some point, they're going to come apart. You have to pick one. Or you're going to fall into the water. You can't be a double-minded person. But part of what I long for us is not just to understand the theology of it, but for for us to, to have heart transformed by the theology of it. A greater depth of love for the one who loved us in such an amazing fashion. Just as we sang from Wesley, the chains fell off, my heart was free, I went forth and followed thee. It's not so you can sit in the dungeon without the chains. It's so you can go forth and follow him. Free. Let's pray. Father, uh, <laughs> and, and looking at so many things, it just boggles my mind how there's no way this comes, apart, comes together. There's no way that this is written apart from the work of your spirit because this logic is not human logic. It is not something of human design, but it is something that you revealed progressively over th- thousands of years. 
but that you manifested in space and time. This is one of those Gordian knots that you alone can untie. And so we praise you that you have indeed maintained your justice even as you grant mercy to us as sinners. So fill us with awe at your handiwork, at your amazing love, your justice, your mercy, your grace. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our righteousness. Amen.